Welcome to Another Way, the podcast produced by Equal Citizens, a nonpartisan pro-democracy organization founded by Lawrence Lessig. This is Adam Eichen, the organization's campaign manager. Before we begin, please consider supporting us on Patreon. If you become a Patreon supporter, not only will you allow us to keep this podcast going, but you'll also get access to bonus episodes and other cool rewards. We promise those are actually coming. To sign up, go to patreon.com slash equal citizens. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash equal citizens. Now to the episode. Joining me in the studio today is Nick Nyhart. Nick is a longtime democracy activist and a top national expert on small donor-driven systems of publicly financed elections. In his role as a leader of Public Campaign and the Every Voice Center for two decades in Washington, D.C., he worked with local activists across the country to develop and help win groundbreaking alternatives to the big money financing of political candidates. Central to his organizational work on campaign finance reform were efforts to broaden and diversify its base of support. He began his career as a neighborhood organizer for Massachusetts Fair Share. Nick and I actually met four years ago. And yes, for those of you who have listened to my interviews before, we also got to know each other during Democracy Spring uh, from the march from Philadelphia to D.C. in 2016. Uh, Nick actually convinced the actor Sam Waterston to join us for a bit. Uh, It was a great time. Welcome to the show, Nick. Glad to be here. So today we're going to focus on a period of democracy reform that uh, you know seems to be lost to the history books, which is a real shame because it was a period in which the movement for campaign finance reform made tremendous progress. Indeed, it's a fascinating what-if moment. For if a few things had gone differently, the struggle for public financing might have been remarkably different. And, you know, the idea of public financing has been around for a long time. Teddy Roosevelt, when he was president, while addressing Congress in 1907, uh, spoke about public financing. After Watergate, a system was enacted for uh, public financing for the presidential elections. And a couple states followed suit, namely Minnesota and Wisconsin in the late 70s to introduce public financing. And in 1988, New York City adopted a small donor matching system as well. And in the 1990s, the fight for public financing entered another phase. And that's the phase we're going to focus on today. So, Nick, talk to me about how you got into the movement for public financing. You got in right when it got good. So um, I've been working for about 10 years as an organizer in Connecticut uh, doing grassroots electoral work. Uh, We had a coalition of 26 progressive political action committees representing all sorts of different uh, liberal and progressive communities um, and, and labor, organized labor as well. Uh, we ran successfully. We recruited and ran candidates for state representative and state senator. But it became clear over that period of time that uh, two things were true. One was that every time we got loads of volunteers into a district to door knock and distribute literature, uh, to do phone banking, the other side would match us with paid mailers or paid phone banking. And in part of my head, I'm thinking, well, all this, all this great grassroots activity is fantastic. But at the same time, the other side just raises more money from lobbyists and keeps pace with us. Uh, And the other thing about it was, while we could muster the grassroots strength to win uh, state rep and state senate races, uh, running all sorts of candidates who are out of their communities, who are strong issue advocates for the environment or for uh, all forms of uh, equity and justice, it was very hard to muster the the momentum at that scale for a campaign for governor, for example, and it became harder and harder. If you wanted to run for those offices, all of a sudden you had to meld your grassroots base with more of a money base, um, and that seemed to be a problem. It also seemed like the problem wasn't going to get better on its own because the deep pockets had so much money. And while I was part of this in Connecticut with a coalition called LEAP, Um, There were people like me around the country who were seeing some of the same kind of things. And so at some point in the uh, early 1990s, uh, a group of uh, people who have been issue activists in the 70s and 80s on um, the nuclear freeze, on civil rights in the South, community organizing in Chicago, environmental work, uh, had reached the same conclusion that lots of laws weren't being passed because of the role of money in politics. And while the efforts for public financing, which they saw as the solution, had died at the federal level, they thought, well, maybe we can win model legislation uh, at the state level, um, and that could leave a movement to, to win federally event- eventually. And they said to themselves, um, uh, what, would, what would an optimal campaign finance system look like that treated everybody equally? In other words, uh, whether you only had $5 to give to a candidate 
uh, or if you uh, had lots more, you'd be treated equally by the candidate. And they came up with a system that they called democratically financed elections, which later became sort of the clean elections model. Uh, And they went around the country to people like me saying, there's got to be a better way to do this. And they certainly had me. I thought, that's absolutely right. And so um, a friend of mine, uh, Janice Fine, was working with them, uh, introduced me to them, and we began to look at getting some funding. And so uh, Foundation Chicago gave money to activists around the country to do the analysis of the role of money in politics in their states. And what people found, you know, from coast to coast and in between, was that the amount it cost to win a race for this uh, state legislative seat was going up everywhere, and that most of the money was coming from deep pocket vested interests. So big lobbying interests at the state capitals. Um, And this was, you know, across the board. And so those analyses were made. Uh, We didn't have the digitized files in those days. So often that meant going into a secretary of state's office who held the files and renting a copier and then Xeroxing all the files and then taking it off site uh, to to input uh, manually. But like I said, they showed the same thing. So the next stage was, okay, what would we want to do about this? What would be the policy? And another slew of grants came in to develop policies that would address this. And so the basic policy was a form of this. You'd gather a large number of very small contributions, let's say $5. Um, and once you got hit a threshold number of those contributions, you'd turn them in and you'd get a grant to run your primary campaign. You'd also have to qualify for the ballot, whatever the local ballot uh, requirements were. But you get this financing. And then you could take no no more money, right? That was it. If you won your primary and went to the general, um, you got another grant, enough to win your general. So that was all fine. It was a level playing field. If your opponent was running under the system, they'd have the exact same amount of money. Now, there were the what-ifs, right? What what if you're up against a wealthy candidate or a well-connected candidate who doesn't want to opt into the system? Because under the interpretation the, the Supreme Court at that point had given, you couldn't make public financing mandatory. It would have to be um, voluntary. So you had to have the system be very attractive. So if your opponent was well-financed and spent more than you did in their campaign, you'd get an additional grant. So when they reported spending, let's say the, the grant you got was 100000 they re- went over that, you'd get a matching grant. The same with independent expenditures. And back then, independent expenditures played far less of a role, but we still accounted for them. So if someone spent money against you, the outside money came in, you'd get matching funds. And in the end, you'd get up to three times the original amount. So that was a good buffer. So in some places, uh, they called that the rescue money or the insurance money. So a candidate wouldn't fear that they'd be outspent by the other side. And the money was enough to get you up to the the point where the additional dollars didn't make that much of a difference. Right, right, right. And so, so that was the basic model. Right. And so the first test was Maine. So let's talk about Maine in 1995 and 1996. Right. So that became the model policy. And people like me around the country, at that point, I'd gone to work for a regional organization called uh, Northeast Action that was mo- working with groups on the ground, community organizations, and coalition groups that were doing electoral politics uh, to, to model these policies specific for their state. Uh, and so people would be sitting around a table designing these and then trying to pass them in the legislature or trying to win them on the ballot. And Maine was the first to put it on the ballot. So uh, they qualified for the ballot in 1995. They would uh, hired a new campaign manager, a guy named David Donnelly, who I then worked with for the next 20 years, uh, to run that campaign. They got almost all the qualifying signatures to get on the ballot uh, in one day, on election day in 1995. And it was a huge coalition that made that effort. Uh, And then they went ahead and the campaign won. And that was stunning. And it, and it won by quite a lot, Nick. I mean, I, I have the results here. It was uh, 56% to 43%. So yeah, it, it was yeah. a blowout. Pe- people said it couldn't be done. And it, it, it was a, a novel. I mean, like all your money, basically, except for your $5 contributions, would come. Uh, but we also found in our polling that it was going to be popular. So it didn't shock us that it was a popular policy. If you said, your voice will be heard with this policy and not the lobbyists in Augusta. So that was a key. It elevates your voice. And and uh, that was a big deal. Although there was a story, Nick, about a, a pollster who refused to take your money because he said, I, I can't do this ethically because you have no chance to win. Right. <laughs> 
So yes, people said that. They thought the opposition would attack and and all that. I also know during the campaign, people would say, well, has this ever worked any place before? <laughs> so tell me how it works right. in some, some other place. And honestly, it wasn't in place anywhere in America. So they'd say, well, could it work in Europe? But they have a party system. And so they do have public financing, but the money doesn't generally go to candidates. It goes right. to the party. So there was nothing comparable. But we, uh, I'd say we hit a home run the first time out. Uh, the system worked really well once they put it in place. Right. And so do you want to tell the story of Deb Simpson? I, I'm not sure if I've told this story before in the podcast, but this is really your story in some respects. Yeah. So one of the one of the reasons to pass this was not just to make it so big money had less influence, but also to allow candidates who weren't well connected with lobbyists or people with a lot of money or candidates who had a lot of money of their own to spend but to say, we'll have a new kind of person running for office. So there was a woman in Maine named Deb Simpson uh, who worked at a restaurant as a waitress. Low-wage job. She was a single mom supporting a child and, you know, just barely making it, living paycheck to paycheck and on tips. And she was thoughtful politically and would talk with the customers in the restaurant about politics. And people would say, geez, Deb, you should think about running for office. And she was who? Me? And then she found out about this public financing system, the clean election system, and decided to run for office. And she won. So all of a sudden you had a woman, a single mom, who knew what it was like to go paycheck to paycheck, actually making the laws that would deal with the welfare of people like her. I mean, her well-being, minimum wage laws and things like that, laws that uh, would make life better for single moms and their kids. Um, so all of a sudden, she had a, a policy-making voice in the state legislature uh, on issues like that, and that was quite something. Right. Uh, no, this uh, story of Deb Simpson is truly amazing, and, and there's kind of a, a sad end to the story, which we'll get to uh, later on in the podcast. It takes a, a relatively dark turn. But, um, you know, you said you hit a home run with Maine, which you did. It, you, you won by a lot on the, on the ballot, and uh, it, it showed that another system is possible, that we could actually deal with the issue of big money in politics. And again, to our listeners, this is uh, 1996. This is not 2010. This is not post-Citizens United. Uh, money in politics, as you know, listeners know, has long been a problem in our country. And so this was an attempt back in the 90s to fix it, and it worked. It worked well. And so you hit a home run, and then all of a sudden, you say, what's next? Right. So what was next? There had been a group of us around the country moving these forward at the state level, and we were in touch with each other. And so what was next was forming a national organization that would do two things. One was to give technical assistance. In other words, let's learn from each other on the ground. So it was a connecting organization. And the second thing was... Um, uh, eventually we wanted to do this nationally. So we wanted a national bill that would be a model bill. We, we knew we weren't going to pass it right away, but we wanted something out there as a national model to say, you know, this is the way, way it would look if we wanted this uh, for Congress and the U.S. Senate. Um, so uh, we formed, a group of us uh, formed Public Campaign, and Ellen Miller, who'd been head of the Center for Responsive Politics in Washington, D.C., had worked with these people all around the country. She went out and raised a substantial amount of money um, from a couple foundations and said, let's form a national organization. So uh, shortly after the main victory that happened, I went to Washington, D.C. Uh, and became their field director and got to work with these folks all around the country uh, who were pursuing the same kind of thing. So this was moving forward in, I don't know, 20 to 25 states uh, we're activists on the ground. We're trying to figure out how to uh, win a similar kind of law that would be uh, carefully fit for their state. And indeed, that happened in 1997. Vermont was the next state. Let's talk about Vermont. That's right. Well, they passed a, a similar law there. There was a very strong contingent of progressive legislators in the Vermont legislature. You know, Maine's right across the way. You got to go through New Hampshire, but they were following Maine. They said, let's do something similar here. And they incorporated into their... Um, bill, um, a low contribution limit, and then an overall campaign spending limit. So uh, under the Buckley decision in the 1970s, you could limit contributions to a campaign, but you could not limit campaign spending, and you could not limit what an individual could spend uh, uh, on their own campaign or what an individual could spend to impact somebody else's race as long as that individual didn't coordinate uh, with the candidate. And many of us thought that Buckley uh, decision was flawed in, in those respects about not allowing us to apply other limits. So in Vermont, um, they said, we're going to limit 
the co- the total cost, the total amount you can spend in a campaign. So that was a way of uh, addressing overspenders. Right. Um, in, in addition to public finance. Right. So it was public, yes, it, it was both. Let me be clear. It was both. But rather than have the rescue money there, they said, you know what? We're just going to say you can't spend any more than that. And at that time, you got to remember, there was money been on the rise all over the country. Even back then, people were saying extraordinary too, amounts are being spent. It's coming from special interest. That's too much. Um, and that maybe Buckley should be reconsidered. And so uh, that was with the court the way it looked in the early 1990s. And they said, this court might take a second look at Buckley and maybe we can have absolute uh, spending limits for campaigns. Um, and the National Voting Rights Institute took that up. Uh, it was led at that time by a guy named John Boniface, who's still active uh, in this field. Uh, and that case progressed. Eventually, uh, a much more conservative court actually got to make a decision and said no. Right. And we'll, and we'll get to that. We'll get to that. And so one thing to our listeners that will become increasingly clear, but just to really outline it now, is that the, the models are all of a sudden diverging a bit. There are different models of public financing. So Maine had a full public financing with then a trigger system that more money would come if you your opponent spends above a certain amount. Uh, Vermont took a different approach, which was a lump sum of money, but then you limit all the extra money that comes into the system. Okay, so that one, Nick, that one in the legislature, so that's important. It wasn't a ballot initiative. That's correct. And then 1998 comes, and there are two states right. that have public financing right. on the ballot. Right. So we, we formed the national organization, and we looked at the rest of the country and said we found about a half dozen places where we thought they've got a good ground game here, build a good, strong coalition. We can help provide, find money nationally. So there was sort of proof of concept in Maine. Although... People said it's impossible, and then you win it, and they go, well, that's just Maine, right? We were saying, as goes Maine, so goes the nation. <laughs> they were saying, well, it's sort of an obscure state off this way. It's really not like the other states. It's worth choice more, voting. Right. Show us more. So uh, we had a, a, a list of groups. We evaluated them. They moved forward. Some just said, we're not quite ready to go forward. In the end, uh, we were looking at uh, two other places to try and win this policy. One was Massachusetts. Um, and the other was Arizona. Let's start with Arizona, because the Massachusetts story is a little complicated. Right. So Arizona, people said, well, you've won Maine, all those liberal people in New England. You, you're looking at going with Massachusetts. But can you win in a state with uh, sort of some deep conservatism to it? And uh, the folks in Maine said, we think we can. I mean, folks in Arizona said, we think we can win here. Um and you dig into Arizona politics, and there's sort of a wily independent streak among the conservatives there. You think of sort of the John McCain conservatism, not uh, the conservatism we see now uh, it, you know, in so many states. Uh, but this was sort of a wily independent streak of it. And uh, we were able to move a coalition, put it on the ballot. We had help from the Ross Perot Group, uh, United We Stand, uh, in Arizona. Um, and had some uh, Republicans supporting it. And we won by the narrowest of margins, um, just a little over 50%. 51.2. Yeah, yeah. So it it was tight there, but it won. And people said, geez, you might make it in a conservative state. That would be interesting. And the system did well uh, for a number of years in Arizona. And Arizona, to be clear, it was a full public financing system with the option for the trigger. Right. Like in Maine. It was almost identical to Maine. $5 contributions. The League of Women Voters was heavily involved in passing it. The local chapter of Citizen Action, a community organizing group, uh, was very much involved. Um, And everybody gave it no chance. The opposition in Arizona, and certainly there was a well-heeled Chamber of Commerce type back opposition. They said, we can ignore this. But uh, they saw it uh, getting closer and closer to winning. In the last minute, they came out against it, but it wasn't enough. uh, And it still won on the ballot. See, this is part of the history that's so fascinating to me is that, you know, we just always think of democracy reform as, oh, well, it's just a bunch of progressives. But here it is in the 90s, 1998, you have it winning in a pretty deep red state. And, And I get it. There is an independent streak, but it's a Republican state. So there was an interesting thing. There were when the other side realized, oh, this is terrible. We got to beat it back. Um, the Democrats in the legislature loved it. Uh, the governor was Janet Napolitano, who ran using the system. Um, but there were also Republicans. It wouldn't have stayed alive without some Republican support uh, in the legislature. And it certainly wouldn't have won on Election Day without significant right. Republican support. And in the legislature, when people tried to kill it, 
um, and legislative leadership on the Republican side wanted to kill it. There were these independent Republicans and the Chamber of Commerce, we heard at one point, came to them and said, you know, if we can make this go away, don't worry about raising money. We'll make sure you have all you, you need. And the conservatives, the independent conservatives said, are you crazy? <laughs> We'd be dependent on you. We'd much rather to be dependent on the people in our district who give us $5 than to be dependent on the Chamber of Commerce for our race. They said, we might agree with you on policy, but we won't, don't want to be dependent on your money for our elections. And right. that's what helped keep the law alive. Okay, now let's move to a the liberal bastion of Massachusetts. 1998, it's on the ballot. So it wins basically two to one. A huge victory. I mean, Maine was, you could say, a substantial victory by 12 points. But this is two to one. So it's much bigger. It had over a million votes for, cast right, for it. It was right. 58% to 29%. And David Donnelly, uh, who had run the campaign uh, in Maine, moved to Massachusetts and ran it uh, here in the Bay State as well. Um, so it's a significant victory, but it was on the ballot, and the legislators were not thrilled, particularly uh, Tom Finneran, who was a very powerful Speaker of the House, and he wanted to do everything he could uh, to get rid of the law. So um, there were people who stepped up to use it, but the ballot measure could not appropriate money, right? So there was a, a fund in the legislature available to pay debts people owed. There was a, a case that went to the Massachusetts Supreme Court that said the Supreme Court came out and said, you know, you can leave this on the books and implement it, uh, or you can overturn it. That's within your power as a citizen initiative, but you can just say we're taking it off the books by a majority vote in the legislature. And they didn't want to do that because it was so popular. So they just said, let's not fund it. So the Supreme Court said, no, you got to fund it. Right. And So wait, to be clear, the legislature just did not fund public That's financing. right. That's right. The, the voters passed a two to one. Yeah. It was law. Right. And because of the Massachusetts Constitution, the legislature has to appropriate the money. They just didn't do it. They didn't do it. So you could go claim the money, right, once it was, you know, because it was there and they had an un, they had a fund and the legislature got to pay for that, but that quickly got exhausted. So what happens when there's not any money in the legislature that you can claim to run your campaign? Only So only a couple of candidates are qualified. And uh, when the Supreme state Supreme Court made that ruling, they also said, so if the state won't pay you, uh, we have a process in Massachusetts for claiming money from someone who owes you money, you can hire a sheriff to seize property and put it up for auction, right? So, and, and you know, sell it in a public auction, and then you can use that money. So basically the court said, you know, they fashioned a law that said there's a remedy. But of course, you know, that's saying if you want to be a publicly financed candidate, here's what you do. You qualify for the ballot, then you get your qualifications, uh, $5 contributions to, you hit your threshold, you get certified, and then you have a sheriff seize public property and put it up for auction. And then whatever those proceeds are, you get that for your campaign until you have enough in proceeds to pay for it. So it And indeed, Dave, David Donnelly did do that. I mean, not it didn't go all the way through, but the campaign did. Uh... Well, at one point, the campaign suggested, uh, I think they wanted the price tag on the, the, the desk of the Speaker of the House. Right. So anyway, um, you know, they'd been along through a long fight to keep it. The... Uh, speaker, by refusing to pay, created this circus where you had to go seize state property and auction it off. And then eventually, uh, because it had become so ridiculous, on a midnight voice vote in a, on a hot summer night, they were finally able to get rid of it. They'd been protected by some Republican governors uh, who would say, I'll veto a repeal bill. But uh, Mitt Romney wasn't going to do that. Right. So the bill eventually... Uh, the thing put on the ballot was so tremendously popular, uh, was killed. Uh, in the end, you know, years a few years later, uh, he went to jail on, on some corruption charges that had to do re with redistricting. Um, and he's not there anymore. But it was an example of a powerful legislator uh, deciding, because as Speaker, he could turn on and off the spigots of money to candidates. So if you defied the Speaker as a sitting representative, he could threaten you, saying, I'm going to shut off all the money to you, Find someone to run against you, and I'll turn all the, all the lobbyist faucet for money uh, to you. So having a publicly financed system took that power away from a very powerful speaker, and he fought it tooth and nail. Right. And we'll see, we see that trend going into this decade of democracy reforms passing and then the legislature thwarting them or you know, uh, overruling them. 
Uh, so, but to be clear, just to kind of go with the trend here, what kind of public financing system was it? Was it a full grant with it a match? Again, it was, or with it, a, it was a trigger? The, the match system, uh, like Arizona, was modeled on the main one. Got it. And the basic model, and that was being looked at throughout the country. Okay. Now, the year 2000, back in your state of, well, not your state, but an adopted state of Connecticut, the legislature actually passes a clean elections bill. Right. So in Connecticut, um, the Democrats were in power in the legislature, relatively progressive legislature, uh, but they didn't have the governor's seat. And progressives had not won the governor's seat uh, in like forever. And so they said, maybe if we had a system of fair financing, in other words, not just the governor going to the uh, lobbyists and raising money. For several years, the governor in Connecticut, John Rowland, the kickoff for his campaigns would be held at the home and sponsored by uh, the most prominent lobbyists in the state. So campaign season began when this uh, lobbyist uh, held a fundraiser in his house for the governor. So it was sort of like they weren't even embarrassed by it. So a similar model passed in, in Connecticut uh, to the one that passed in Maine, but it was just for uh, the governor's seat. Um, and, and I think statewide office as well, and the governor vetoed it. And people said, well, yeah, you got some free votes there because there are legislators, there were Democrats who voted for this that really didn't like it, but they knew the governor would veto it. So they said, it's a free vote. I can look good again because it was popular. So casting yay vote for reform, they knew would make them look good for the voters. Uh, but they also knew the law wasn't going to come into effect. Right. So, OK, it failed then. But then fast forward five years. Yeah, so all of a sudden we have Corrupticut, and there are politicians all over the state, several prominent mayors uh, going to jail for various forms of corruption. And then you have uh, the Roland administration being in trouble as well for a whole bunch of things. Uh, for one thing, he had a state treasurer who you know, would give out the bond business uh, to, to uh, firms that sell bonds, and the state bonds would go out to them. But he began to say, yeah, you know, if you want to sell these bonds and get the commission on them, you got to hold a fundraiser for the governor. Um, and so there was a huge scandal. The governor was forced for office. So the governor that vetoed the original clean election bill right. was so forced from office. Forced from office due to money corruption issues. He also had a lieutenant governor who would take over for him. And she, Jody Rell, had been sitting there uh, for 10 years with Roland in office, you know, being the number two. And so she very much wanted to distance herself from the legacy of John Rowland. So all of a sudden you had a governor ready to talk with reformers about what reform could look like. And she said, let's get rid of lobbyist contributions. The reformers in Connecticut said, that could be part of a solution, just like public financing. Small donor-based public financing could be part of the solution too. And they had this model in mind. And it sort of hit a uh, stalemate where uh, the Democrats wanted to publicly fund the governor's office uh, Rel was saying, I'll consider public financing. And then late in the legislative session, she turned around and said, you know, I'll be all for public financing if we'll do it for all offices in Connecticut and not just the statewide offices. In other words, you're coming to publicly finance my race. I'll do that if you'll publicly finance your races too in the state legislature. So the legislature was sort of like, uh, hmm, well, we hadn't been, you know, Right. Uh huh. And within 24 hours, they came around and the legislative leaders in the House and the Senate who were Democrats said, we want to work with you, Governor, on having a public financing system uh, for everybody who is running for, for state office. So they went back and forth, but could never, not surprisingly, they all said, yes, I'm for it, but could never agree on anything. And the session ended without taking action. The reporters said, well, once again, a, a well-intentioned reform effort dies. And the reform community basically said, no, this isn't over until we say it's over, right, until we win. And they came back and they came back. There were all sorts of research projects done about where people are getting their money from. I remember a big lobbyist fundraiser where people were getting on a boat to go down a cruise on the Connecticut River. And all of a sudden, there was a gauntlet of protesters they had to run to get on the boat, right? There was a pathway to the boat. It was lined with people with signs. They get on the boat. They think, well, no one's noticed. We're safe. We're on the boat going down the river. And uh, a flotilla of kayaks comes out with signs <laughs> and bullhorns uh, talking about the money. And then they go onto the first bridge on the river, and there's a drop-down banner uh, about it. So, you know, the idea that the, the protests and the effort was going to go away just because the session was ending and they could refuse this 
was wrong. And people kept the pressure up, and then eventually um, they came together, uh, uh, led by uh, the state Senate president who said, all right, here's a model I think we can agree on. Um, and it passed. Uh, it was a bipartisan vote. Uh, the Governor Rell whipped some of the Republican votes and made sure that there were Republicans who supported it. Um, and it passed uh, late, late in 2005 and went into effect for the 2008 elections. And so what kind of model was this one? It was uh, a modified version of the the clean elections. Instead of getting $5 contributions, you could get contributions up to a $150. You had to have a certain number of people giving you those contributions. In addition to that, you had to hit a financial threshold. So it wasn't built entirely on $5 contributions, but they didn't permit really big contributions either. And you also had to have a number of people. So as one state senator, a uh, guy who's now in the state Senate, but ran for this his first time for office as a state rep, uh, Gary Winfield said, you know, meant when I went door to door in my district, uh, campaigning, I could say to someone, I really need $5 from you because that'll help me qualify. And it was true. He needed her contribution just as much as he might need the $150 because that person counted to the total number of people who had to give. So, you know, he could build it around $5 contributions and half people understood they played an important role in his campaign by giving as little as $5. Right. So in, in little, like less than 10 years, Maine, Vermont, Arizona, Massachusetts almost, but it passed and then was repealed, and Connecticut. Right. That's a, a large number of victories in a very short amount of time for this kind of real novel structural reform. Right. Uh, now, you've told me this before. Internally, everyone thought this would be a short campaign, that once you started getting victories, uh, eventually it would spread across the nation. Now, now there were three court cases that really uh, threw a wrench into this process. So the first one was in 2006... Randall v. Sorrell. Right. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? And well, I do want to point something out in, in addition to that. There were victories like this uh, in acting system in, in other kinds of venues and, and for some other offices. So in New Mexico, they passed something for their state uh, regulatory commission, which is, which is uh, elected. In um, Albuquerque, New Mexico, they also passed a public financing system like this. In West Virginia, in Wisconsin, in North Carolina, they also passed this kind of model for various kinds of offices. And right. I'm sure I'm not, not fully some. statewide in the same right, way right. that these other programs were. Right. significant. Often legislatures were saying, let's try this, but for somebody's office other than my right. own. But it was growing. It, it was it growing. Was continuing There was to reason for optimism, right. absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Uh, okay, so 2006, Supreme Court says, Vermont... Your law that you passed, which we flagged earlier about limiting expenditures and low contribution limits and, and yeah. spending limits, it's not going to go. They said, yeah, they said, we're not going to let you just say so much you can spend and no more. And so that was the, I believe, one of the first campaign finance cases that the new Supreme Court uh, under the George W. Bush uh, appointees, so with Alito and Roberts, that was one of their first campaign finance cases. And they basically said, no. Right. I think the hopes of reversing Buckley would have done better with a court that was uh, more liberal than the ones that uh, we've seen over the past 15 years. Right. And so this is important because, again, going back to Vermont, Vermont's model was not the trigger mechanism. It was you get a certain amount of public money and you limit all the other spending. That's right. And that's how you compete. Right. That's right. how you deal with this is that you limit all the extra money and then you give everyone public money. That's right. Uh, and so the Roberts court, by doing so, by getting rid of these expenditure limits and con low contribution limits, basically rendered that public financing model uh, no longer really operative. Right. I think it said to people, if you want to roll back Buckley, we're not going to touch that. We're not right. going to do that at all. And in the years since, the public financing system in Vermont has largely been unused. I, I believe I saw that earlier. Is, that's basically true, yes. Right, that very few candidates are using it. So then in 2010, we have Citizens United. Uh, now, Citizens United, uh, contrary to what many people think, did not necessarily uh, increase the rate of spending. But what it did do is it really opened the door for independent expenditures. And what these public financing models do is when you opt in, it limits the amount that you can fundraise and spend and the, you know, the sources of where you raise money. But it doesn't deal with independent expenditures. Right. I mean, Buckley allowed independent expenditures. But it was a little like driving on city streets with red lights and yellow lights rather than an expressway and uh, for this outside money. So there were – you could always find a way to get unlimited amounts of money from deep pocket A to campaign B. But you might have had to go through some hurdles right. or ups and downs. There were certain things you couldn't do 
even though the money in, in that sense, the amount of money wasn't wasn't limited, but some of the pathways you had to take to spend it did place some restrictions. And what what uh, Citizens United did was basically said, we're going to put you on the expressway for big right. money. And it made it completely easy to spend right. unlimited amounts, uh, 3, and, 5, 1, Yeah, the problem for that was these systems of public financing said, you can get X amount of money, and then we'll have trigger funds that will get you up to three times that amount of money. But we saw a steadily rising sea of big contributions uh, that would eventually overtake those limits on the public financing system. Right. And and ever since, this has posed a problem to campaign finance systems or public finance systems to a degree, which is that if you accept uh, you know, limited money, independent expenditures can come in and spend three times as much and drown you out and right. you can't do anything. And, and the original theory was because unlimited expenditures were still there – uh, in that, when the system was first created, because Buckley would permit those uh, those expenditures, the theory was at some point the money just didn't buy you anything more, and so if you had a certain a threshold amount of money, you could still beat a privately financed opponent had much more. So we getting you up to three three times that original amount uh, was part of that theory. Right, and, and we'll and we'll get to the the trigger in a second, but. <laughs> you know the I want to go back to Deb Simpson because this yeah. this now closes the loop on Deb Simpson. So, what eventually took Deb Simpson out of office? So, I, as I recall, it was 2010. And right, it was, it was the same national... the same first election under uh, the jurisprudence of Citizens uh, United. And um, around the country, uh, there was a move by conservatives to fund an effort to move state legislatures uh, to the right. Um, and uh, Connecticut, I mean, sorry, uh, Maine was one of the places that was targeted. So they said, we can flip this uh, state Senate from Democratic to Republican control by targeting, uh, I think, five seats. And they needed to flip, I believe, four of them. Um, and so they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars doing targeted attack mail. Uh, and under the Maine law, you were supposed to report those expenditures, and that report would trigger the matching funds. So that would keep have a candidate keep pace. So um, Deb Simpson was one of the targeted people. Uh, her son was biracial. Um, the mailings uh, basically dealt with race, attacking her, um, and uh, they didn't report them. So Deb, until it was too late, so Deb never got the matching money that she would have gotten to fit, fight back. And so, she, you know, under the system, she should have had that money. Uh, and the people who spent that money were eventually fined, right? But I think but it was, was too a, late. It was a massive expenditure, and the fine was thirty-five thousand. Right. So, I th I believe they said, "Oh, we just these states are all so different. We didn't really know what the rules are here." But of course, they had so much money; they easily could have hired lawyers to explain it to them. And my guess is they did know about it and said, "You know, if we just de delay the reporting, we'll pay a small fine, and that's a cost of doing business." Right. Whether they knew that or not. I, right. No one can prove, but I just think that they uh, knew that they didn't need to worry about the law too much. Right. And so just to kind of sum up, I mean, the, the, the consequence of Citizens United in relation to public financing is just it made it so much easier to spend uh, on independent expenditures. And that's what happened in Maine. It's what happened across the country, uh, especially with uh, subsequent uh, the federal court ruling in Speech Now, which created the super PAC. Right. Uh, it's just become easier. Right. So the triggers were essentially needed and they needed enforcement mechanisms. So some uh, some way to then say, if there's a certain amount of independent expenditures, you will get uh, an extra tripling of your money. Right. Okay. Right. So that, that takes us where I want to go, That's which right. is 2011, the very next year, the Supreme Court then says what? So out of Arizona comes a case and this, these have been, there's a coordinated legal strategy around the country because these cases were coming up in different places, but they were successful in Arizona. Um, what they, the basic theory was, if I want to spend a lot of money, uh, independent expenditures attacking somebody, but I know they're going to get money to answer back, I may not spend that money, right? In other words, if I'm not guaranteed a mon monetary advantage because they are going to be able to keep up with me, um, I might not choose to spend the money. So, right. in other words, the Supreme Court said by having the threat of the threat of the trigger be unleashed, that's stifling the speech of the rich donors. Right, because I might. I mean, I still have all the agency. I decide whether I spend that money or not. Right, and I can also take the lead. My opponent doesn't know when I'm going to spend my money, and they're going to have to wait for their response money. So, 
you know, the speech argument is, is uh, I think, taken to an extreme or an absurd extreme. But, right. but that case went forward with contrasting cases from other places that didn't, dis, you know, that disagreed. And so, of course, with these disagreeing cases, uh, that's what pops it up to the Supreme Court. And they said, yes, this does chill speech, and beyond all else, we have to protect speech. Right. So so the core principle of in, in the policy of Maine and Arizona, which is that you're given a lump sum, and then if your opponents spend above a certain amount or there's a certain amount of independent expenditures, you get a trigger mechanism or you extra money. That is now unconstitutional. Right. And, and uh, you know, the other thing about it is obviously there's more speech. If a candidate with public financing has money to spend, they wouldn't have to spend otherwise. There is more speech, and there's speech on both sides, and the person who controls the amounts of speech is the person who decides whether to make that uh, additional expenditure or not. But the Supreme Court said no to triggers, basically. And that took this key element uh, away from this model of public financing because you couldn't accept more money under the laws that were passed. Uh, You couldn't accept more money if you were in the public financing program and you were left without these supplemental grants uh, that could help you keep pace with your opponent. So, okay, so right now, 2011, right, all of a sudden, the Supreme Court says the Vermont model doesn't work. You can't limit the amount of money that's in the political system. The Supreme Court says we're going to make it easier for independent expenditures to, uh, you know, go into elections and potentially flood public financing systems. And then the Supreme Court says, and that whole trigger mechanism that allows you to match if there's a big lump sum of independent expenditures, uh, that's also not constitutional. Okay, so all of a sudden, all this momentum, all these victories, it's a little, we're set back. We're set back, right. and, but it's not over. The story's not over there. Now we're into a, a new phase of public financing in America. If this was kind of the third phase after the early ideas in the, in the turn of the 20th century and then the reforms in the 70s and 80s, and we just talked about the 90s. Now we're into a, a new era, the post-2010, post-2011 era, which is to really starts in 2015. And you were very much involved in this. And in 2015, Maine decided to try and fix their system. Right. So in Maine, they said, all right, people need more money. And there wasn't any rule against raising more money or having more money or public being publicly financed, but just having your opponent's action trigger that. That's why we call it the triggered funds. So if them triggering uh, more money was the problem, well, then you say, let's not condition the money on them doing something. Let's simply say the way you got that first money by having public financing through $5 contributions if you need more money, let's just give you that same amount of more money by getting more $5 contributions. In Maine, they said, well, we we like what we have. So maybe we should just say, go out and get a chunk more of $5 contributions and you get more money. Um, and they back basically said, yes, let's do that. They also increased the fines. So if you were late reporting, uh, like the anti-Deb Simpson money, you'd pay a much, much bigger fine. Right. Um, but that passed on the ballot. Right, so it was, it was on the ballot in 2015, and yep. it passed? It passed. And so now, candidates faced with massive independent expenditures, and if you take it to scale, Maine does have massive independent expenditures. They might be several times uh, what the candidates spend. They now have, candidates have recourse to get more money, and there's continued participation in the system. Right. So, but also on the ballot in 2015 is one of the most exciting public financing models, a new model. Right. One that wasn't has, has, had never really been part of the conversation. I mean, it had been in part of some academic circles, but it had never been enacted in law. Just like the main clean elections program had never been enacted before 1996. In 2015, you also helped a coalition pass a new model in Seattle. Right. So um, uh, by this time, we were in, uh, being called Every Voice. And uh, David Donnelly, my longtime colleague, was running the campaign side of that. And folks in Seattle had come very close to winning uh, a matching fund system of public financing, which I know we'll get to later, um, like New York's. Right, New York City. Uh, And people didn't give much of a chance, but without much money and without much uh, big backing, they came really close to winning. So they were saying, let's go for it next time around. Uh, Let's put something on the ballot in 2015. And after thinking about it, uh, they worked with a local group called the Sightline Institute, that did a lot of policy research and said, you know, let's try this voucher system, which uh, the first time I know it had been, uh, the proposal had been developed was by a Yale Law School professor named Bruce Ackerman, called it, I think, Patriot Dollars. Right. And and, and Larry Lessig was also one of the big early yeah. uh, intellectual backers of this and, and has been a long time yeah. advocate of so it. So the basic idea was, uh, let's promote participation 
and promote, promote equity at the same time, get more people involved. So in a matching fund system, like in New York, uh, if I get um, $10 from you, uh, I get a six to one match at, at that time. So I get another 60 um, and that's how it works. Uh, so this system was a voucher system. They said, let's give every resident of Seattle uh, $100 in $425 vouchers. Now, these are worthless pieces of papers. They can anybody, only be used for political spending. The only way they turn into money, if they are turned in by a candidate who's qualified by raising a certain number of small donations, has qualified for these vouchers. So I can collect them, but um, unless I uh, am in part of the voucher program, uh, I can't turn them in for money. So all of a sudden, you've made everybody, at no cost themselves, a potential $100 donor to a candidate. Um, and when I said there's more participation under the system is because if I go to your door and you give me $100 uh, in vouchers, I get that 100 and it's easy for you to give, but I don't get a six to one match. In fact, in a matching system, I get $100, I get another 600 automatically, right? The six to one match kicks in. But in the voucher system, I got to go next door, knock on somebody else's door and get $100 from them. So it requires more people participating. Um, and that that was uh, uh, the idea behind this. So make it every easier for everybody to give. So a person who uh, is living paycheck to paycheck can still give a hundred dollars. Someone who's homeless, right, uh, in Seattle can still give you a hundred dollars. So there were candidates uh, campaigning uh, within the homeless community, right? One of uh, the city's leading housing advocate uh, was a candidate uh, in this first election. Um, and under vouchers and went to uh, the homeless people and said, I want to stand up for you. I've got a track right. record and got hundreds of dollars from in vouchers from uh, from homeless I mean, folks. That's that's a really radical transformation yeah. of political campaigns. Yeah. And OK, so so the in 2015 goes to the ballot. It passes. It passes. Yeah. Dramatically. First first time anywhere well, in the United States. Yeah, Around that close to that two to one margin again. So in 2015, you win, the, or public financing advocates win in Maine to fix the system, to fix it under the jurisprudence of the Supreme Court, to fix the whole trigger mechanism. Yep. And then also in Seattle, it passes a new, you know, public uh, finance system, a new a new tool that we've added to our tool belt, our toolkit, uh, that we can use expanding uh, forward. And and indeed, Nick, you and I have spent a lot of time looking at the numbers from, so it went into effect for the first time in 2017 for two at-large races. And then this past election in 2019, it was the first one uh, for district races. So there were right. about there were seven, I believe, candidates that were um, seven races uh, where vouchers were applicable. And, and the results, Nick, have been really remarkable. Yeah, yeah. So I, I took a quick look at the numbers. And um, so just a little bit of the backstory here. Uh, the council in Seattle uh, had run afoul of the desires of some of the uh, biggest corporations in Seattle. In fact, some of the biggest, uh, one of the biggest corporations in the world. And so, so this is 2019. 2019. Well, yes, in 2018. 2018. 28, the lead up to the elections. Um, they're taking on, the city council is saying, we've got a great homeless and housing crisis here in Seattle. Part of this has been caused by uh, tech corporations, which have offices here, attracting lots of people into the housing market. Affluent people were paying them well. And so they're taking up the existing housing, bidding up the cost of housing, and all of a sudden, uh, people who've had homes before can't afford them anymore, and there's not enough housing, so uh, there are more and more homeless people. And it was becoming quite a crisis, affecting large numbers of people. And so the council said, you know, we ought to put a tax on the, the corporations that are hiring lots of workers here that, uh, in their view, were helping create the problem. So uh, they said yes. Amazon said, nuh-uh. Right, because this tax was something they'd pay more on than anybody else, and and, and Amazon—that's their HQ right there. Their headquarters is in right. They have over 50, over fifty thousand workers in a city uh, that's not that. You know, it's not a big city. It's not New York City or L.A. or Chicago. It's substantially smaller. So uh, they said no. The council sort of backed off one proposal, cut it in half. Amazon still said no. Uh, the council passed the smaller version, nine to nothing. Amazon said, you know, we'll put something on the ballot. And uh, here's our polling. We're going to wipe you out. We're going to turn this over. Wouldn't you rather just reverse it and save yourself the embarrassment of being this wrong? And they also, it was clear they were, I think people thought, and they'll come after us electorally. In so, other words, they were going to spend massive amounts of money on independent right, so, so to wipe out the council. The council turns around. They go from a 9 nothing vote in favor of a modified version to repealing the modified version they just passed, 7-2. to two. So almost everybody switches their vote. 
And then uh, Amazon is pretty clear that uh, they'd like a council that is more malleable and more friendly to them. And they, um, uh, so indeed, four members of the existing council say, I'm not going to run again. Um, and so there's seven district seats up. There are two others that are at large, but those aren't up in 2019. And Amazon and some other corporations, but mostly Amazon, uh, spend money like no one has ever seen before in outside expenditures. Right. Amazon pledged $1.5 million as part of, I believe, a $4 million campaign to take over seven seats. <laughs> right. So there's seven seats. And this is an unprecedented amount of money. One stat I saw was that in the previous 20 years, when you add up all that independent expenditure money for those 20 years, it was still less than what was being spent in this one election cycle. Um, and in six of the seven races, there was a candidate whose uh, Amazon was backing versus a candidate Amazon was not backing. So you had six races where this money was was zooming in. And basically, you had a setup where you had all the candidates, almost all the candidates were taking vouchers. It wasn't like voucher candidates versus non-voucher candidates. They were also gathering lots of smaller contributions. The question was in a, an arena where you had lots of people giving money, lots of people getting vouchers, would the decisive blow be struck by Amazon coming in with a huge independent expenditure? And this has been the worry since the Supreme Court really created this expressway for independent expenditures. And on election day, the voters voted. They have a mail system. So often the voters, when they're mailed, the votes are mailed in, they aren't recorded for up till a week right, later. Right, it takes a little while. Yeah. So it actually, the results didn't look terrible for Amazon the first night. But uh, when all the votes were counted, five of those six candidates, where there was a choice between an Amazon-backed candidate and someone who wasn't backed by Amazon, five of the six candidates who won were the people who were challenging the Amazon-backed candidates. In other words, Amazon lost in five of the six races. Five out of the six races. And they were left with a can a, a, two things. One, um, a uh, council was probably more amenable to those kinds of taxes than the one before. Um, and they, uh, I think, took the fear away. I think the next time around, people won't be quite as scared as Amazon's bucks because the small contribution-based system that included vouchers um, had such a high participation. So many people were paying attention. So many people were giving small contributions um, that uh, the Amazon money was seen for what it was. People ignored those ads. Uh, and Amazon itself became an issue and there was a backlog against it. Right. So I, I think you saw the sort of limits of what this super big money could do. Doesn't mean we don't need antidotes against it. But there's a level at which high participation, high visibility raises with disclosure. It was really important that Amazon's money was made public. Had it not been made public, who knows exactly what it might have happened. But the voters knew, well, Amazon is having to spend so much money. Maybe there's something wrong with this. I don't want anything, anybody to think our council can be bought. So, there, so uh, it's quite likely there was a huge backlash against that expenditure. And certainly it's disclosure that makes that backlash possible. Right. And so the, the key point here is not that the vouchers, uh, you know, since both sides were using vouchers, the point is not voucher versus not voucher. The point is that the vouchers allowed for the anti-Amazon candidates to run a viable campaign while engaging right. the community around them in a way that allowed them to compete and eventually win. Right. In other words, the vouchers served as both, both a mobilizing force as well as a sustainability force in their campaign. And so you know, it was very successful. Now, there are some problems with the system, but not to get into the minutiae about it. At the end, the candidates had to be released from their spending limits because everyone had redeemed as much as they could in vouchers, and they showed that there was a certain level of independent expenditures. So there are a couple of fixes potentially to the system that will have to be made. But the key point here is that the vouchers in 2019 and in 2017 mobilized a lot of civic participation. A lot of new donors came into the system. And it allowed people to who have never given before, including people uh, who live in low-income housing. You mentioned people who are experiencing homelessness to give for the first time. So it's a really it's expanding the political community in a way that uh, you know other other public finance systems may not do in the, in the same way. In other words, this is another another system that we just need more data from. Right, and I mean I, I think in general uh, what you can say is there was an explosion of big money in that race. And there was also an explosion of citizen participation. And in the end, the citizen participation far outweighed uh, the power of that money. And that's a really good thing to know, that organized people acting together uh, can be beat back you know, some of the deepest pockets 
uh, in the world, not just in Seattle, right. but, you know, uh, but Amazon's pocket right. for practical purposes are deeper than anybody's. Right. And I just want to, again, emphasize this, that the, the point is not that the vouchers exceeded or somehow matched the Amazon spending, because that wasn't true. Right. But what happened is, again, the vouchers provided the baseline to run an effective campaign. That is the key to the vouchers. Yes. Yeah. Excellent. So, and I just a couple more points on the vouchers from the studies from 2017, Nick, are, are really just quite remarkable in terms of the people who used vouchers were more representative of the electorate than those who were just giving cash. Uh, it increased the percentage of funds coming from constituents as opposed to those outside of the city. And honestly, more candidates were able to run right. with vouchers. And, and again, that's the key reason why public financing so, is so powerful. That's right. I mean, I think the person who has said it most succinctly uh, is Larry Lessig when he says campaign finance is all about who a candidate depends on financially to win their office. Um, and I think the different systems of public finance, small donor-based public financing system, uh, and you can do it several different ways. The idea is to have the people you depend uh, on for your campaign money look like the people you want to represent, right? Not right. like the people who are the richest or the corporations with the best uh, lobbyist fundraisers. But, you know, you want the donors to look like the constituents. And that's what these small donor systems, where you combine small contributions uh, with public financing, that's what they do. Right, right, right. And, and one of the really interesting things, at least from my perspective, is that in 2017, uh, you know, the donors, the, the voucher users were more representative of the electorate but on not so much on the on the racial side. In other words, that the voucher users were not really super racially diverse. And so what the program did to try and fix that was issue community grants to uh, increase the edu you know to to educate about the program. And what we're waiting on the numbers from 2019. But again, some of these programs it takes time. That you know requires some real efforts on, on the part of the government and civic groups to really get us to a place where the donors, even with public financing. Uh, are actually representative across all demographic categories. Right. And so in Seattle, they said, we just don't want vouchers to be used by a lot of people, but we want them to be used across the board in all the different kinds of communities we have here. You know, I, they uh, printed the, the voucher materials in, I think, a dozen languages um, as a way to reach out to uh, all the residents uh, of, of Seattle. Um, and then they made these community grants, grants to community organizations that service uh, communities that were participating less uh, in the vouchers as a way of acquainting people with them. And it wasn't simply, here's the voucher program, here's how it works, here's your voucher, but it was really a civic education. Here's what the city council decides. If you have a stake in all these different right. kinds of issues, here's a way to have a voice when candidates need money. So it was a really a process of civic education uh, than just something about vouchers. And that's really healthy yes. uh, to make sure people know they have a voice in the system and the ways they can exercise that voice. Right. And so if there's one thing listeners can take away from this conversation is that the, you know, the devil is in the details in these programs. And, you know, it may sound wonky, it may sound, you know, kind of boring, but you know, the way we design these systems, whether it's through community grants or, you know, how much we set the thresholds for campaign limits uh, or the amount of the match in public financing is critical to the success of these programs because the, the programs because there are many different metrics here. And so I want to quickly shift the conversation to matching funds uh, like in New York City because your organization did a, a fascinating study, uh, I think in 2013, about the matching fund where unlike vouchers, you have to give a small amount of money and that money is then matched at a given rate. You found that basically if you allow for a matching system to be matched up to above $100, it ceases to be representative of of racial minorities. Right. So what we did was, uh, this is uh, in 2013, um, and there was a question about how to set the level of matching funds. Did you, you know, is it better to have $250 matched at four to one or uh, $100 matched at eight to one or whatever, right? right. So there's, how do you, what difference does this make? So we actually downloaded the data from New York City um, and then uh, in Many most jurisdictions don't even record small donors, you know, who they are, where they live, uh, because the small donor money isn't that important. So they even they don't even track it. But in New York City, where it triggers a match, right. the small donors are important. So they do keep that data, and we matched um, contributors to their census data for their little small neighborhood data, and then sort of got a, a measure uh, on race, um, on uh, income, also. And said, at what point does your average uh, donor, 
uh, $10 donor, a $50 donor, $25, what point do they demographically look like New York as a whole, right? And so it's sort of complicated methodology. But what we found was that it, people who give 10 and 15 and $25 donors uh, look, give, the, give that amount, look like New Yorkers at large and are, are very diverse uh, in terms of income, in terms of ethnic and racial makeup. And you begin to lose that and things skew whiter and wealthier. Even at, you know, you see those effects at 75 and $100. So you get less representative as you encourage contributions. Now, in the big world of politics, you know, $250 or $500 or $1,000 may sound small. I mean, may sound uh, small, right, compared to what Amazon puts right, in right, into right. Seattle. But for ordinary people, giving 250 or 500 or or $1,000 just isn't going to happen, right? Right, right, right. So, so you lose the effect of the diversifying the donor yeah, base yeah. when you allow that threshold to increase beyond 100 uh, you know, and, and the higher it right. gets, the more you lose. I mean, it's what you might expect, what what common sense would tell you. But we looked at it demographically, so I think that's been the argument. And it's you know, in New York, they know this, and so the system first, I think, matched the first thousand dollars one to one. They changed that to a four to one match on two hundred and fifty dollars, and then they went to a six to one match on one hundred seventy five. So each one of these gives more expanded power to the kind of donation that an ordinary citizen in representative of New York as a whole might make. And now they've even increased that uh, up to eight to one. Um, so but they also increased the matchable amount. For citywide races, it went up to, to 250, yeah. So, But they also did some other things that right, I think right, right, right. on the whole, the reforms they made, uh, I think we're, we're quite good ones, and I'm you know going to be very curious to see how it all works out when the data is crunched. Right. So I don't know how many of our listeners followed all of that, but basically the takeaway is there's a reason why at Equal Citizen we obsess so much about the specifics of the policy. There's a reason why we get into the weeds, uh, because it really does make a difference in terms of the goals of the program, which is to uh, allow for politicians to be dependent uh, not upon special interest and big money, but uh, upon the people themselves. So I think that that's key. So, Nick, I want to ask you one more question, and then we're going to wrap up, which is you've seen this movement go from before clean elections passed in Maine, when there was no hope and it was just a leap of faith. You saw it passed. You saw it spread across the country, well, at least across the Northeast and then in, in Arizona. And then you saw the Supreme Court <laughs> sucker punch it and uh, say, no, you can't do that. And you went down to the, the abyss. And now you're seeing kind of it spread up again in new models and new places. Right. And you see presidential candidates talking about this. What are your thoughts about the state of the movement for public financing, and just are you, are you hopeful about the future? Absolutely. I mean, there are, there are people who all over this country are trying to figure out how to make vouchers or matching funds and other systems uh, work. Um, there are uh, state after state, either at the ballot or in state legislatures, resolutions are being passed for a constitutional amendment that would allow these unlimited expenditures to be limited. Um, big money, uh, even as these systems are succeeding, Big money is having a, a larger and larger role. Um, we're seeing a surge in small donations also uh, that is, I think, a reaction to the power of big money. So I'm I'm optimistic. I don't think, you know, the movement for change won't stop unless the problem is right. dealt with, right? Um, and that, that I'm not worried that even if there's a lull sometimes or there's some setbacks, what drives this forward is people wanting to have their, their voice heard uh, I think that's pretty fundamental to being a human being, wanting yourself to count, right? Right. And so it's across all different kinds of democracy issues. And the the money in politics field is still pretty rotten in terms of the inequity that's built into the system. Right. So, uh, there are always going to be new activists, uh, new organizations, new activists, new political leaders. And new ideas. see this change. And yes, and new policy ideas. And certainly we're seeing an uptick uh, in, in the elected officials who want to see public financing. At the presidential level, we've seen so many of the candidates now not only say they're in favor of public financing, but they would put democracy issues, including campaign finance reform, on their day one list of things they want. Right. And some are, some are actually giving specifics. I mean, Bernie has supported vouchers. So has Andrew Yang. Kirsten Gillibrand supported vouchers. Elizabeth Warren has been clear about she supports a matching system of six to one. I mean, the idea that these presidential candidates are not only endorsing the idea, the concept of public financing, but giving us this, the specific model, I think, right. is, and, is a sign of the movement. And on Capitol Hill... Uh, with HR1, you have a, a really forceful, uh, strong public financing bill that Representative John Sarbanes has championed for years and years. But now his whole caucus ha has voted for it. Um, and in the Senate, Democrats have supported it uh, as well. So 
you know, I think that's a huge, uh, a huge leap forward uh, as well. Now, obviously, uh, once Democrats are in a position of power, some people are going to find ways to turn around or have disagreements. Um, but it's still a big step forward. And I, I will remind you back, you know, lesson from Connecticut is you put people on record and then when an opportunity comes again to move it, they have a hard time turning around saying, well, I used to believe in this, but now I don't. Right. Um, and the lesson so, from Massachusetts is uh, just because it has a, a D next to their name doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to support reform and that we have to keep pushing. And that's why a citizen's movement for citizen equality right. is key. That's right. No, that, that's, that's, it has to be bottom up. I will also say this. I think at the elected official level, this is less of a bipartisan issue. The parties have really uh, been different. That doesn't mean you can't find some Republican champions, but they are harder to find. Uh, and it doesn't mean all Democrats are, uh, are going to go to the mat for this or even right. support it. But I think those differences are, are important. But I'll say this. Uh, at the average citizen level, whether you're a Democrat or Republican or you're mad at both parties, you want your voice heard. Right. And these systems do that. So ultimately, um, I think this is much less a partisan issue at the level of your everyday citizen. They just you know, want their voices heard. Right. Um, even in this surge of small donors, uh, there are lots of examples on the Democratic side of people gathering small donors together and having success. But Donald Trump's done that as well. So there are activists uh, on both sides of the issue. Uh, but ordinary people who can't give $1,000 or $5,000 or write a tens of millions of dollar checks the way some of the uh, billionaires are doing now, um, this will allow their voices to be heard. And I think that's a popular idea among all citizens. Well, Nick, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Okay, Adam. All right, you. this has been a, another episode of the podcast, Another Way. See you next time. Mm-hmm.